Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Good morning, everyone. Disaster struck this week. I went back to Portland, Oregon, where I'm from for the long MLK holiday weekend. And somewhere along the way, I misplaced my ID, which meant that I could not take a flight out back to New York on Tuesday. So as I record this on Wednesday morning, I am preparing to make an attempt to convince the TSA, which you can actually do, to let me fly without a proper ID. So hopefully if you're listening to this on Thursday morning, everything was successful and I made it back to New York. But the obvious point is we will not be recording a new episode for Thursday. So here's what we are doing instead. I've been saying this for a while, but I, as many of you know, also host another podcast called The Deep End, which I host with a tech company called OnDeck. And I brought Sagar on the show to talk about the process and thought he put into building breaking points. It's a really interesting interview. It's about media. It's about tech. It's about a lot of the different topics we cover here on The Realignment, just with a more Sagar-centric angle. So basically pretend this is an episode where I bring Sagar on as a guest and interview him about his show and what he's doing here. I know that there's a lot of curiosity about all those facts, so people will really enjoy this. Quick things to note, it's been a while since we've done a Q&A episode and we've gotten a bunch of emails from folks asking for us to bring the segment back. So next episode on Tuesday will be a great Q&A roundup. So you know of a deal. If you are an ordered listener to the show, you can email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com with a question or comment for Sagar and I to discuss. You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with your question contained within. We really appreciate those. Or you can leave a comment on the Substack that is going out today or on a previous issue. We love doing this, get a bit more of a open the kimono moment. So send us a question or a comment, any direction. We will try our best to answer as many as possible. There is a bookshop where you could buy books for people who are putting out really interesting work. We know you all enjoy those too. Our Substack is still going out this afternoon on Thursday. So please subscribe there as well. We have a lot of really interesting shows coming up there on the line there too that will be highlighted there as well. And finally, you can throw us a tip if you enjoyed this conversation and any other ones we have. We've really enjoyed all of the support so far. And one last, 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 last note, if you enjoyed this conversation and you are interested in more of the tech venture capital, web three side of things, I really recommend you take a listen to the deep end. There's a link in the bio and in the email below. Really appreciate transferring the tech centric part of the realignment audience to that channel as well. Of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting the show. Let's get into this really great episode of Summer. Sagar and Jetty, welcome to the deep end. Oh, it's good to be here, Marshall. Thank you. I'm talking with you not merely because you're the co-host of our other podcast, The Realignment, but because what you've done first at the Hill with the rising YouTube channel and your new channel, Breaking Points, which you just launched this week, congratulations, of course, really gets at what this show is trying to focus on, which is there's this really difficult step you have to take if you're launching any venture in these really shifting industries. So it'd be great for you to just sum up your history with The Hill and what you're doing with Breaking Points. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, it's great to be here. And it's fun to be here in a business context instead of the interview style that I'm used to. So basically, I started off at the Hill. Basically, I started out as a former White House correspondent, which is a much more traditional journalistic type job. And I come on as the co-host of Rising with Crystal. At the time, it was a TV type product at the Hill. It didn't really know what it was. It wasn't filling a product market niche, which was available to people. So what Crystal and I did is we very quickly identified, number one, let's put the show on YouTube, as in there's not a lot of high production news which is on YouTube or geared towards YouTube specifically. But second really was that there's this entire audience of people who were dramatically underserved by the traditional corporate media infrastructure both on YouTube, but really generally. And so over the course of two years, we built the channel from 5,000 subscribers whenever we took over to I think it was 1.3 something million on the day that we left. And in the course of that time, we were getting audiences which rival cable news channels. So you know, million plus, 2 million plus, 2.2 million often at the very end of the number of daily active viewers, all of whom are in the key demo. These are numbers which cable news audiences would absolutely die for. And, and what's the key demo, by the way? We're, we have a non-news audience. Right. So the key demo is uh, age 25 to 54. The only people that cable really cares about because those are the people that that advertisers care about. And so our audiences, I think the median age on them is somewhere around like 27, convenient since I'm 29. And largely over the course of the time that we were there, we just decided that we thought we could do both a better show independently because of some of the business model and incentives that were built into the hill but ultimately we just believed in the emerging ecosystem and i think this is something you and i could talk a lot about today which is that the infrastructure available for people like crystal and i who don't have technical backgrounds simply exists at a much higher level than ever before which enables my ability to run the business the way that it is right now i want to go back to something real quick because you said something fascinating there isn't high production news on YouTube. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. I think that the answer is that the business model which most news companies are wedded to, and this included The Hill, was an open system which is reliant entirely on advertising. And I'm not going to be the first person to tell you this, which is that uh, trying to build an entire large, especially high margin business off of CPM ads on YouTube, probably not the best thing. So can you eke out an existence living in your basement and making commentary with a couple hundred thousand views? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could have a relatively middle class lifestyle. But if you want to do high production news the way that we're doing with several hundred thousand dollars in costs whenever it comes to production that's just not going to happen so what we had to do is marry high production news to where the audience is which is on youtube with the premium subscription model that we are at currently if you have multiple revenue lines then it makes the business a whole lot more sustainable it's actually pretty analogous to a lot of the cable news business. People think that the cable news business is floated by advertisers. That couldn't be further from the truth. A huge part of their revenue is pre-booked in terms of subscriber fees whenever it comes to the actual cable companies and carrying fees. So those are like the hidden infrastructure which actually make corporate news one of the last bastions, which is away from the pressures of the internet. I'm not talking about digital news. I'm talking specifically about cable. So that's why I think this black hole kind of existed in the high production news space on YouTube whenever we started out. And that's exactly what Chris and I are trying to do right now. 
And it's so fascinating because this is something that I want the audience to double click on because people often don't understand this point. So someone could hear, wait a second, Sagar was getting as many daily views as a CNN show in a comparable time slot. Wow, that's competition. Rising is winning. Right. Sagar's beating <laughs> this person. No, not at all. Because as you said, the cable bundle, which obviously is slowly going away. You and I both don't subscribe to cable. A lot of the listeners probably don't either. But if you do subscribe to cable, you probably demand that CNN, MSNBC, Fox News yep. be a part of that bundle. So if you have a TV show, it doesn't really matter if you only have 900,000 people watching you actively, if you combine advertising with that multi-billion dollar cable subscription bundle. No, you're exactly right. And that's part of the people are always like, why is CNN not dying? I'm like, uh, number one, they have huge carrying fees. Number two, they have this whole business called CNN International, something you and I probably don't even think about, but which is a massive corporate footprint abroad. It brings in hundreds of millions of dollars to their revenue line. Same thing with MSNBC, which is owned by NBC, which is owned by Comcast. And same thing whenever you go and you take a look over at Fox News, owned by Fox Corp, formerly you know part of the Murdoch empire, and all of that. These are all businesses which actually have a very good business model. Now, the question is, is that business model delivering the best product? I would say that the answer is no, specifically to people who are our age. And all of the attempts which were made previously at fulfilling this niche were top, kind of what top-down approaches, and I've denigratingly called it what the suits wanted Millennials TV to look like, as in they funded it to the tune of $40 million or whatever. I'm talking about Mike specifically, but there were several other uh, shows. I think AM2DM is another example over at BuzzFeed, where they basically took this kind of like corporate identity politics obsessed type news and then the stuff that would work on MSNBC, which is actually insulated from audience pressure, and then put it in a medium where you do actually have to compete a much more free market, a place like YouTube, a place like Twitter, which is audience-driven engagement. Oh, and it turns out that they were total and complete failures whenever it came to that. And my thesis about why exactly we cracked the code and were able to get the tens of millions of views that were coming back over and over and over again is simply because we had to do it in the opposite way which it wasn't top down, it was bottom up. It was actually finding the audience. It was about doing the news in a way that we felt was both authentic to both Crystal and I, but also, frankly, fulfilling a large market space. You know, I've been a fan of Joe Rogan for many years, far before I ever took over this show. And from the beginning, I understood that there was a massive cultural black hole that was being unserved by the corporate media and which was largely being plugged by YouTube. And nobody had yet plugged that space whenever it came to news. There's a lot of comedians out there who try to compete with Joe. Uh, I think Joe's probably gonna, always going to do the best job there. There are a lot of science podcasters and other others who fulfill the other aspects of his audience, people like Andrew Huberman, people like Lex Friedman, and others. But Joe has always been, from the very beginning, interested in news, but he never really had people who he could point to as his news program. We were very lucky that you know he happened to become a fan, which was a very cool moment for me. 
given that you know seeing your one of your idols admire your own content but from a market perspective you can really see and understand why i think the show was such a big success at the hill and why we've had such a successful launch even though it's only been a week i can say pretty confidently that i'm very very happy that we made this decision so i've got a million questions but yeah let's just clarify something real quick what is the new thing that you've launched. We've alluded to this, but what is the model? YouTube plus subscription. Explain what that is. Yeah, it can maybe sound a little convoluted, but for people who are familiar with us, it makes total sense. So when we were at the Hill, we would post probably six to eight clips per day, which were approximately eight eight minutes on the longer, or 15 minutes on the long end, like four minutes on the short end, and it would be broken up into discrete blocks. So what Crystal and I decided is, since that's the way that many people consume us already, that's gonna remain free. The clips, so to speak, are gonna remain free. But, and this is the great but, if you pay us $10 a month or $100 a year, then you get the ability to watch the entire show completely uncut. Now, this actually has a lot of benefits. Number one, it reduces the production time dramatically to shoot something in a single sequence. Number two, the previous iteration of our show, Rising, was not available as a podcast. It's obviously much easier to be able to release a podcast version of something whenever you're not taking multiple stop downs in between breaks and so to speak from an editing perspective. You bring all of that together, and what do we have? We have Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. It is available on YouTube as clips and as audio with breaks on anywhere where you got your podcasts. Premium members get the uncut show as a video and as audio daily. We're ironing out some of the technical difficulties as we speak because it's actually not as easy as it sounds, but I would say give us a week, maybe a week and a half, and we're going to have that totally dialed in. So what's really interesting about this is subscription podcasting is a new field, especially in the North American market. There's been a lot of talk about how in China, there's a lot more subscription private podcasting, right. but there's a lot of options on the table for a creator like yourself when they are launching a private podcast that's subscription-based. There is Spotify is launching a subscription model. Apple's launching one. There's Patreon. There are bundles of private feeds like Luminary. What made you go with Supercast when you ended up using? We ended up with Supercast because Crystal and I are actually just believers in the open market system. And so Apple is Apple exclusive. Spotify is Spotify exclusive. Patreon, in addition to taking a large percentage cut of your revenue, also does not give you the Stripe account and credit card information of your users. I don't mean in terms of like, I can literally see your credit card, but people out there who work in tech, you'll understand what I'm saying, which is that I own the payment relationship with my subscribers and I have their emails. I could take it wherever I want. It's a lot like Substack with journalism. Supercast is banking on the fact that their platform is so superior and that their cut is so much less than a Patreon or elsewhere that we're gonna stick with them, which is correct, by the way. I, absolutely love the Supercast platform. What we discovered really in this is that the Omni environment, as in the ability to switch back and forth between whatever podcast player you want, watch it on YouTube, the open system is always, in my opinion, going to be a better user experience, which is that I've got people who watch on YouTube, but I got many comments saying, oh, thank God this is available a podcast. Sometimes I want to listen to your show while I drive, and I'll end up playing YouTube playlists, and I have like 90 different ads. That's a miserable customer experience. So we are basically able to deliver a premium customer experience 
wherever they want to be through the use of a subscription model like Supercast. So we have their emails. We can email them our full uncut show every day. We can push them, whichever podcast player they want, to whatever the podcast stream is, the uncut video that day. And more importantly, the customer relationship is ours. They're just the facilitator rather than some sort of walled garden, which is what we're seeing right now. And something that I love about what you're outlining here is you're speaking to a huge advantage you and Crystal have as independent creators and in that you can actually create this huge, massive business that has always different points. Right. So at the Hill, as you were describing it, you had YouTube. And as we pointed out, YouTube isn't actually the greatest way of supporting expensive content. But something that really, I think you and I saw early on that made the work y'all were doing at Rising make total sense under the subscription model is you and Crystal wrote a book, made it to the top five on yep. Amazon when it came out in early 2020. You had a Substack, which you're doing for a while, where that Substack was actually the top free Substack for a while. That indicated that, wait a second, there's a world where we as creators aren't just YouTubers, we're newsletter writers, we're exactly. literally authors, you're podcasters. But in that model, you only had one way of actually going about it. So can you talk about what it felt like to be creating this brand that in many ways is really tied to you, but you were so limited by the model you were under just being a YouTuber. Very difficult, right? Because I understand this environment um, from some of our discussions, from really just observing exactly what's happening, which is you got to meet people where they are, which is everywhere, which is that sometimes people want to listen to you as a podcast. Sometimes people want to watch you in clip format. Sometimes people want to watch you in full format. And sometimes people want to read what you have to say. And none of those are mutually exclusive. You have to meet people everywhere at all times, wherever they are. It was very frustrating being locked into a single format, a single revenue line, which doesn't also give you the ability to experiment, which is that actually it's a lot of fun. I mean, right now we're doing full shows. I love it. I much prefer the production schedule and the ability to flow through topics one another. It makes it feel much more natural. I also understand that it's going to be widely consumed in the future as a podcast. And we've always had a huge gaping hole in the ability to go to audio first customers. I mean, I was listening to Joe Rogan talk about this. 70% of his audience never even watches his video, according to him. Only 30% of the people even look at his videos. 70%. I mean, that's a pretty massive market space I've been missing out on for quite a long time. Same thing whenever it comes to the written. A lot of people really like uh, consuming our emails, expanding into a newsletter very, very easily, something that we could do if we wanted to and may even expand into in the future. So I think the real thing is this, is the sky is the limit in terms of where people, oh, Instagram, I forgot about Instagram. Some people only want to watch over there. Don't ask me, I don't really understand it, um, but that's what some people like, so be it. So I'll hire somebody and he'll cut Instagram clips, which will be exclusively available, or not exclusively, which will also be available there. Being able to meet people wherever they are with whatever they want to do, I think that's the most important thing. What's so interesting about this is your whole rising experience is caught at these weird intersecting trends where you see, wow, Crystal and Sagar, they have a personal relationship with their audience. They can write, they can do all these different things. That should create a massive opportunity for the two of you to monetize and really grow. But with the model, you still were tied into this media company. So you're obviously independent now, but how would you advise 
media companies or people who create tools for media companies, how should they think about all of the options that their top tier talent have in front of them? And one, one, one quick thing just to make it clearer. So for example, I said free Substack for a yeah. reason. You do not have the ability given your contract because of non-competes to monetize that Substack. So I'm sure it's really frustrating to have the crew at Substack saying, <laughs> Crystal Sager, you're right. number one. This is crazy and not be able to do it yet still be in that company. So how should people just think about whether they're, whether they're creators or even media executives, et cetera? Well, you should provide your talent freedom and you should provide them the ability to expand because otherwise, if they're smart, they're going to see all of the immense opportunities which are laying out there for you if you go independent. At the same time, I don't want to overemphasize that. This is not for everybody. This is a lot of work. Uh, this is something that you know. Most people who work in media do not want to know how the sausage is made. And I understand that. I actually have gotten very familiar with that. It is a pain in the ass. Let me tell you something. In terms of filing fees, creating a company, creating your revenue lines, payroll, whenever it comes to 1099 contractors, graphic design, audio engineering, making sure that things post on time, DNS requirements, custom email domains, how MailChimp decides whether your stuff is spam or not. There is a reason people work at media companies, which is that some people just want to create content and then leave at 5 p.m. I get it. Whereas recently, somehow, shout out to this guy, I don't even know how he did this, he found my phone number and called me because he had a billing error on his, on his credit card. And hey, I gotta take the call. I gotta sit there and coach this guy through on how to make sure that he goes through this and this and connect him with my customer service associate. These are all things which other people don't even think about, which is that I have customers now that I'm accountable to. I've got billing problems. People have refunds. People have emails that they change. There's a lot of back-end stuff here. Oh, I didn't even mention healthcare. Figuring that out is a fun one. Uh, figuring all this back-end stuff, which is bundled in the form of a corporation where most people work, is actually really hard. Now, obviously, the benefit is I don't have a salary. I have unlimited upside, which is that if I put in a lot of work like I'm doing right now, I can just make more money. If I come up with a cool idea, I can make more money. I actually saw Hamish McKenzie make this point over at Substack, which is that whenever you do really good work in the subscription environment, you get a raise. That's not always the case. How many times do you actually get a raise in the corporate environment? Like once a year because of Christmas? Like, or even then you gotta like go in and justify it. Like, I don't have to justify anything to any boss. Like, what you'll see is that if my customers, aka my audience, like my content, then they'll just subscribe more. So the upside is unlimited in terms of the amount of ability that you wanna put into work, but I do not wanna downplay how much work outside of what you're comfortable in that this actually is. And what I love about everything you just said is every ambitious creator needs to hear that clip because too often you have folks who approach the question of big media going independent in a really ideological way. They'll say, big companies suck. This, mm -hmm. this, this, and that. I want to be free. I think you have a really accurate perception of the benefits and the costs. Like, I think you'll agree with this. There was a bit of disagreement with about this on Reddit. I don't think you could have been this successful if you didn't go to a big media company in the first place. Probably Imagine not. if yeah. you'd left. It's awkward, man, but we know we know people who are 
reporters and they're like, hey, we think we're going to go to Substack and launch a thing. It's like, I don't right. think that's going to work too well. How do yeah, you, how do you like, think that's about not that gonna work for you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the brutal truth, right? Which is that welcome to the actual free market. This is something that a lot of people who work in media are totally insulated from. Media has never really been a for-profit business. It's almost always been subsidized in some way. And really, only the absolute stars make it and everybody else, most people don't really care what you have to say. Now, I'm not saying that what you're doing is not necessarily a bad for society. I'm just making an objective statement of fact. So for example, the New York Times Africa correspondent, there's no way that person is bringing in even close to their revenue line from their terms of their salary. But if some shit goes down in Africa, you better make sure that you have an Africa correspondent. So I'm just giving you an example of, look, this is a classic bundle, right? Like this is what bundles are. This is why they work. This is why media companies are the way that they are. But people should not internalize the message that everybody's going independent. Therefore, I should go independent. I've seen certain people say that they're going independent, and I cringed. I knew they weren't going to make it. I could see their Twitter following. I could see their media, uh, how much of a real audience that they actually had. The biggest mistake people make is that they mistake other journalists um, RTing them for thinking they have an audience. I mean, I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb and say I'm not the most beloved person by the blue check crowd, um, and we definitely have like multi-times the audiences that they do. I'm not saying what they do isn't important, I'm not saying that having elite spaces where journalists write for each other and cover other elite networks is, isn't also important. They have their own funding structures, though, for a reason. This is a specific place for specific people that not everybody should go into. If you were, let's say you're an investor, and this gets to a question I'll ask a little later, what would you look for when you're looking at bundled talent or just anyone who's in the mainstream who you think you go independent? Or let's say you're at a platform. Let's say you're at Supercast yeah. doing partnerships or you're at Substack. What would you look for, especially in your 20-something, 30-something cohort? Yeah, I'd have to look for somebody who understood the omni-nature, really, of the audience of the ability to deliver. I mean, I'll give you many examples, which is that like I write all of the headlines with Crystal for our show. Most people who come up in the traditional corporate environment, they have no idea how to write a headline. They've never written a headline in their entire life. You have to have a deep level of entrepreneurial spirit in order to market, do good content. I forget. I think you and I were talking about this once. Isn't there some Substack guy out there who talked about how good content was only one quarter of the job? I forget. Oh who yeah, it is. this is this is no. This was such a great. We should actually just raise this up. I hope we could find it for the show notes. But he just pointed out that. When he launched his Substack, he thought, I'm just going to write and it's going to be brilliant. And then he's like, wait a second, brilliant writing is only a fourth of my job. Oh, yeah. The other three fourths are the parts that you described, the email, the system, the customer service, all of that part. And I think that gets to it. That's a, such a good point to bring up. Yeah, exactly. Look, like I worked very, very hard in order to make sure that all of that back end stuff was there so that I could focus on doing good content. But the content part, no offense to many good people out there, frankly, that's the easy part. Like being good at delivery and good writing, all that stuff, great, no problem. The hard part is delivering that to a customer, creating a relationship in which you can have an actual sustainable business, figuring out how to make sure that that is all funded and subsidized so that you can do it the next day and the next day and the day after that and the day after that. These are all the really important things that people should focus on. 
And here's something interesting. You and I have been talking about all of this. Actually, we came across Supercast in that model because Andrew Wilkinson had a really great post called Howard Stern is getting ripped off where he talked about how Howard Stern's contract with Sirius XM, the radio station, wasn't a great deal for him. And instead, he could pursue a model where he did a subscription podcasting system where five to 10% of his audience would listen and subscribe. And if you add that to the free advertising based channel, he could mm-hmm. have, he can make way more money than he could with Sirius XM. But in that same piece, I was rereading it today to prep for this episode. Andrew said something that I think is really interesting, especially in your context. So when he was talking about subscription models and why it's a good one for creators, he specifically said that the type of news that you do is not a good idea. Hmm. He talked about Anderson Cooper. He said, look at Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper makes $11 million a year, something around there, yep. a lot of money, but he has a studio team. There's the expensive cameras. There's all these really expensive costs that make it that he can't just leave. For example, in that case, CNN isn't just a middleman for him. It's actually this thing that enables his entire platform to work. So instead, Andrew said the people who should be leaving the middleman are podcasters, radio hosts, people whose situations are, to quote Andrew, are much more like a newspaper in the sense that you publish, you have hosting fees, you have an editor. That's about it. So why did you decide to take the high production model to this private feed that Andrew, who I really respect in this space, thought would just never really happen? Because the last thing I'll add here is I don't want to make it seem like it's crazy that The Hill or other media companies let you slip through the cracks. Because if you think about it, what you're doing is the definition of something that shouldn't really be possible. And we'll get to how you're being successful later, but how do you just think about this whole thing? Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, Here's why. I'm not Anderson Cooper. I don't have to fly to Cairo on a dime and hire private security and also have an associate producer, oh, and have a sat link back to New York. All of that that I just described, that alone, that trip probably costs like 300 grand. That's just not going to happen. So in terms of live news, no, I don't think it will ever work in whatever I'm talking about. That being said, high production TV news commentary, as in primetime television today, there is zero reason that you have to be in the corporate environment to make that happen. So the only reason, though, actually, is that all of that actually pays for Anderson Cooper. By the way, I probably get triple of Anderson Cooper's ratings on every average night. I'm not saying it, you know, as a object, like as a you know subjective statement. I'm saying as an objective fact. But Chris Cuomo, who probably gets a million viewers a day, which is the highest level on the CNN network, he pays for Anderson and his, Anderson's entire team to be able to do what Anderson does. So we're just getting back to the fact that there's a huge difference between live television news. I cannot even begin to describe how expensive live television news is. It's astronomical. People listening probably have no idea. Like the amount of last minute flights that these people have to book, overtime, um, expense travel insurance, safety, all kinds of stuff like that, that is all incredibly, incredibly hard to do. That is not what we are doing. And I think that that is why what we are doing is successful. If I was launching the CNN of today, and by the way, I I think that's a terrible idea, but that's a whole other story. CNN's actually very good at, at what it does whenever it's doing what it does. It's when it does everything else that it really messes up. So that's where I think the division is right now. 
And that's so useful because I, another point I hope people take away from this episode is that there's all this beef on Twitter between tech people and media people, centralization, decentralization, citizen journalists, all these different codes. And as with most things in life, things are actually pretty gray. There's something in the middle. And the reality is there's actually a really expansive news ecosystem where different people expect different jobs to be done in different contexts. No one would tune into Breaking Points or Rising to see Tahrir Square during the Arab Spring in 2011. That isn't what exactly. you do. And that function with the Africa correspondent or Middle East correspondent in that case at the New York Times is actually really well served. No one would expect you to have good reporting on conflict in the South China Sea. So if you're thinking about the existence of media companies and how more independent functions like Sagar and Crystal could operate, you have to understand that these things supplement each other. And that's how it's going to play out. Yeah, look, what's really happening here is we're unbundling the part of news which people actually wanted to watch from the people that nobody really wanted to watch, but isn't also, which is also still pretty necessary to being a news company. And that's really difficult. And if you work in a news company, I feel for you. That being said, um, a lot of that subsidization has actually, in my opinion, corrupted the business of journalism itself, which is why we need to find a better middle ground. What do you mean by that? Well, I would say that the real problem is that a lot of cable in particular has been completely insulated from market pressures to the point where they can use their monopoly on millions of voices or millions of eyeballs and upon the credibility factor from just being the three most established news mediums around for 20 years in order to push, in my opinion, irresponsible ideas, behaviors, really using their models in order to pull people apart and worse, I think, straying away from what made them good in the first place. It's like you just said, why does CNN exist at a very core level? Talk for your square, 9-11, um, January 6th, live pictures. Live pictures are awesome. You know what doesn't happen, though, that all that often? Interesting stuff. So what do you have to do for a 24-hour news channel? You have to fill everything else in between. That's the problem. Whenever you don't have live pictures, then you have a problem. You have a host who's filling airtime in between commercials. That's where all of the screw-ups start to happen. So this is great. I think this is a good time to pivot to the practical questions I think everyone is having at this point. Obviously, you've just started, but I think the one key fact I want to bring out is just your initial success on your first date because you've had a lot of takes, there's been a lot of opinions, but I think it's really key to set up that given everything you predicted, the bet really sort of paid off. So can you just articulate for us the indicator just week one that this is going to be a success? Yeah, look, I was stunned. I mean, honestly, this is when I knew it was really going to work. So we were launching at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And just to make sure the website worked and all of that, I published it live at 7.30 a.m. And I think we had like 50 people sign up to pay and become members before we even announced it. As in they like found it independently, signed up. Think about that. Putting your credit card on something that you had not even officially found out about something for yet. I think that's totally crazy. What I really realized is that the pitch, the central pitch of our show, which was high production television news commentary, which is geared explicitly against the corporate incentive in order to rip people apart, in my opinion, was so directly hated 
by enough people that they were willing to make it a success. And so what I was also really blown away by too is the willingness for people to put up with some of the growing pains of starting a business. Like, look, I'm not an audio guy. We did a video. I thought it sounded fine, frankly. I saw a ton of comments and pushback against it. I said, okay. So I texted our director and I just said, hey man, this is wrong. You need to hire an audio guy. And I have the ability to do that because of our premium subscribers. And then I saw many of the premium subscribers today say, oh my God, Guys, thank you so much for listening to our feedback. So it's actually more of a market pressure mechanism success. And it's awesome because they've actually given us the ability to fulfill the promise that we wanted. Here's the thing. I had no idea how this was going to play out. I literally did not know. Left a cushy gig, guaranteed success with over a million subs. Show was doing great, better than ever. Millions of viewers a day. I had no, absolutely no idea. And so... We put a lot of our own money into creating a set and creating everything from the very beginning, which was actually pretty easily recouped with premium memberships. And now we actually have enough that we can invest even more. It's just going to take even more time. And I think that what the fun part of this for the audience is that they were there from the very beginning. They saw what we did whenever we had no idea we were going to have their support. And then they're going to see what we could, we can do given their support and then spiral it and scale it even higher. You just brought up a dilemma, which I think is fascinating, which is you're a creator, but you're also a founder of a media company. And every creator, especially someone in the news or politics space knows that you should never read the comments. However, <laughs> you've launched a business, so you have to read the comments. To a yeah, certain that's degree. right. Exactly. And it's really because it's because it, in this case, and I suggest anyone who's interested in breaking points, go check out the breaking points Reddit. They have a really interesting Reddit forum where there's actual good faith, interesting, hey, this is the audio thing. Hey, this is a call I have with the design. Here's a thought I have here. There's feedback. There's customer feedback. And founders know that they have to do that. So how do you think, just from a pure mental health perspective, how do you advise media people who are going independent, who have conditioned themselves to literally not read the comments? How do you suggest they move into things? Yeah, this is a good question. And this may sound glib. Read the comments when you need to which is when you're starting a business and you need feedback on your new product and whether the audio is okay or the graphics are okay or did I miss this, did I miss that, then read them. If comments are about editorial, forget it. Those people, they're either gonna complain or they're gonna leave and if you have enough of an audience, it really doesn't matter. So if you wanna go and you wanna read feedback whenever it comes to your production value or a specific business question or a critique in the way that you're delivering your product, 100%, no worry. That, that's called market research. You're an idiot if you don't do that. But becoming too obsessed with specific critiques of what you said or not whenever it comes to what you're talking about or the way that you present something, that's not gonna do anything and you should just tune that stuff out, especially once you reach a big enough level. I used to read all the comments. Uh, I actually owe a lot of rising success and breaking point success to the fact that I used to read almost every single comment on one of our videos. Here's the deal though. Once you start getting millions and millions and millions of views, you just can't do it or you're gonna go crazy. And so I don't really read a lot of the editorial comments anymore, but I definitely take the time to go and read what people are saying about production and otherwise, because sometimes I honestly get great feedback. People will say, hey, I really enjoyed what you said here. Or, hey, 
uh, I think it would be better if you did X, Y, and Z. Sometimes I'll just email those people out of the blue or contact them. I'll just be like, hey, call me. Uh, I, I, I thought that was interesting. They usually get a kick out of it. And I think it's an important way to show engagement on the things that actually matter. Yeah, that's really, it's you're looking at structural things. When it's a structural thing about the system and the distribution, that's incredibly important. So something that people are wondering, no doubt, is did you raise money for this? Because you alluded to this earlier, but during the 2010s, there are all these efforts to build the millennial CNN, right? It's a great pitch. It's an easy one-liner. What did you do when it came to thinking about financing and actually launching the business? Yeah, I mean, that was the traditional model, right? That's kind of what most people do. But enough of the tools existed that we were relatively confident that yes, with a pretty significant sum of our own personal money up front, that enough could be recouped. As in, what are you doing whenever you're raising money for a company? You need access to things that you yourself cannot provide. So what did we actually need? Strip everything down and say, what do you need? You need a production crew, number one. Okay, well, I know how much that costs for a single week of production. I was relatively confident I could finance a single week of production before we had some sort of revenue in the door. What else do I need? I need graphics. Okay, let's go out and we'll find out how much graphics costs. And if you guys want to know, it's about five to $10,000. Okay, what about a set? Okay, well, let's talk about a set. So a set is what is most basic. Well, you need a studio with lights. Okay, you can rent that actually for a relatively modest sum per day of use or per hour of use. And how much does a background cost? Well, actually, it can cost a lot or it can not cost a lot. And you can try something in the middle, which is what we did. Same thing whenever it came to a desk, those TV news desks. I had to literally cut out the middleman and find an acrylic desk manufacturer, which I was able to communicate directly with him. And we got a great looking TV news desk for, again, not that much money on the grand scheme, but a lot of money whenever you're looking at it on your personal credit card sheet. So there was just not anything that we needed to raise money for that we couldn't realistically attain ourselves in enough period of a time, which then once our premium membership started rolling in, we paid back and then some. So here's an interesting question though. You're talking about you didn't need to raise money for startup costs. That really makes sense. But what about raising money because you have an expensive vision of the future? So I'm thinking of we had the comedian Andrew Schultz on our podcast, The Realignment, and he has a Netflix special. He's a really successful, really smart guy. He gave a pitch to you where he's saying, Sagar, <laughs> Rising could be a $500 million business. You could do all these big things. So- when you hear something like that, do you think that millennially oriented news like you're doing, do you think that this is a $500 million opportunity? Because the thing is, when we're telling the cautionary tales of Mike, of Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Vice, et cetera, they all thought it was that size of opportunity. In many ways, this didn't really turn out. And you know, another interesting data point on this whole issue is that if you're looking at Morning Brew, which is the finance, business-focused publication for millennials, they raised around $750,000, but they didn't raise additional aggressive venture funding. So just how do you think about the opportunity from this? Because I'm, I'm imagining a world that someone, if someone were to chart out 
the revenue that you've generated in a, into, into a week, it would be very easy for you to make the case for this turning into a billion dollar company eventually. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but look very cautiously at every tale that comes before the ringer and Mike and many others. Now look, the ringer did have a good exit opportunity, but they also had to raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars in order to achieve that. So venture scale, it's about a 10 X return. I don't necessarily think there is a 10 X return at the super high scalable way. Now, it's a pretty profitable small business. I think as a small business, that's great. And I think that this is one of the things that I want to underscore, which is that not everything has to be venture. Not everything that you do has to be able to scale to $1 billion unicorn or whatever. This is a small business ethos, which has been around in America for a long time. And I, what I would do, I guess since I'm talking to some venture people, is I would bet on the tools that enable me to run a pretty good small business. For example, like Supercast, that platform literally scales across all podcasters and more. Same thing like MailChimp, which is what I mean. I don't know what MailChimp's valuation is. I'm sure it's very successful. But that's another example. MailChimp. Um, or Zapier. I think that's Stripe. how you pronounce it. You even said Stripe, Stripe yeah. makes this all doable. <laughs> Dude, Stripe makes this doable. Zapier makes it doable. MailChimp makes it doable. Supercast makes it doable. And any, a simple cast makes it doable, which for publishing our podcast, um, all of these different iterative platforms, which were charging us fees at scale, those are venture businesses. Their customers are not venture businesses. That's how I would distinguish the two. Substack, another, another oh, Substack, yeah, yeah, Patreon, all these. Thing, right. So, so this is so cool because this is a place where there's still a gap though, because yeah. I agree with you around you as a creator. You doing rising the way you want to do it is not a venture scale business. But I'm wondering if there's an opportunity for alternate means of financing people like you because this kind of got buried. But the key thing is you and Crystal did have money to self-finance to get started. So I'm sure you're focused in you're focused on millennial political news, but there's infinite numbers of categories of creators who can build these broad businesses. Could you think of some models that would be interesting for funding people? So for example, if I if I were running a media company, so if I were running The Hill, I would have seen that you and Crystal had the top performing free Substack. I would have said, hey, I will literally hire one of my editors to run that for you. I take 40% of the revenue you run the rest, you have total editorial control. Let's go into business together, revenue share. Mr. Beast, the big YouTuber obviously, mm -hmm. is talking about funding and supporting and building other channels. How do you think about this part? Not just so pretend for a second you didn't have the ability to self-fund. How would you think of the opportunity if you were saying, I don't wanna to go to a big venture capital firm? Yeah, that's exactly what I would say, which is that you would have to have someone who is very, very good at identifying talent and critically the ability in order to blow that person up. And if I guess if you did that enough across enough creators, you could create a pretty big business. I still don't know if it's venture scale business. The closest analogy to this in the business world is the talent agencies, places like CAA, UTA, and others. I don't actually know how much money they make. Um, I So I guess what, at the very, very top end, you're talking about like 500 million or more? I'm not I mean, exactly w, sure. William Morris Endeavor almost 
majorly like IPO'd. So these right. can't like the the the, okay. the, so the big it, it the big work. agencies can get huge. Record labels are huge. Right. I mean, this is the record industry. Okay, so I guess it can work. You have to get really really good at it, and you have to fix the creator economics of it. The current system is everybody wants to own your content. Nobody's going to do that anymore. It has to be the splits. The agents take 10% of their con- of their stars' contracts. They get paid. When the others get paid, everybody rises and falls together. So it's got to look a lot more like that than anything else. So this is so useful. So to put a bow around this, your advice, I guess, would probably be when you're starting out, you don't need to own anything. Your objective mm-hmm. was never to say, I need to no. own Rising. Right. But what was so interesting, and this actually came out in the Reddit forum because people were asking about this. From the start in your Hill contract, you said, hey, I'm doing the realignment. That's my own thing. So even though the realignment was a nothing podcast, the Hill was a 6,000 subscriber YouTube channel that wasn't really generating revenue, you still owned an asset. And that's something that I feel as if every creator should just have in the back of their mind of how they're doing this. Yeah, exactly. Which is that ownership is real. It's okay. Ownership isn't important until it is. So in the beginning, whenever you're getting big, then yeah, look, the arbitrage that you're making there around the ability to reach an audience, ability to become known, et cetera, that's all really, really important. At a certain point though, it reaches a critical mass where the ownership does become both important financially and also from a content perspective as to who is the greater beneficiary of the relationship. As long as it's you versus the company, then you're all good, as in they're providing you a big enough platform relative to what you're getting out of it. Now, once that starts to switch, then I think that's when people should start to begin looking at becoming independent. Sagar, what's so fascinating here is that you were able to, in the first few days of launching the subscription product, you were able to actually gain more subscribers than your initial projections when you were actually setting up the business said you would achieve in the first year. How did you do that? Yeah, you know, this is actually a concept that I got from Ben Thompson, which is that people don't understand how big the internet is. The internet is huge. I was worried about this too. I was like, man, subscription fatigue. People are already paying for this guy, that guy, and they're already paying this amount of money. Actually, no. I got thousands of messages saying this is the first thing that I've ever paid for. It's not that they're not aware of what those people are doing. It's that this particular product spoke to them in a way that they were willing to pay for it. And if you bundle all of that together in terms of new customers, then you have a sustainable revenue base for the number of people who are paying for your product. So that is the one point I would make in terms of how big the pool there is for subscription media. It's huge. The internet is massive. It's hundreds of millions of people. I mean, I check the email addresses of the people who subscribe. Hong Kong, Canada, Great Britain, Singapore, South Korea, South America. It's not just America. Australia, New Zealand. I mean, I could go on and on, which is that the internet is so big, I actually don't think enough people have wrapped their minds around it. So that's one thing, especially whenever it comes to subscription economics, which if you have a big enough audience, it can and will work disregard the excels well actually no don't because it's important to be very pessimistic in the beginning and then whenever things wildly exceed your expectations that's awesome so this suggests that suggests that we don't actually have an accurate perception of how many people would be driven to support someone practical question that i'm interested in when it came to your pricing points you have three pricing points you have ten dollars a month hundred per year and then $1,500 
for a founding membership? How did you get to those numbers? Yeah, so uh, credit to Jonah Goldberg. That's the only credit I'm going to probably give him ever, which was that he launched this company called The Dispatch. And there was a buried item in one, a newsletter or an interview or whatever that he Because Columbia, so we launched a Substack because yes, Columbia Journalism right. Review. It was on Substack. He had the $1,500 price point. And he said, we thought we were going to get two and we ended up getting 200. And I remember being like, 200 people gave this guy $300,000? That's insane. Obviously, the $1,500 price point, it makes you really uncomfortable. You have no idea how that's going to work out. Now, though, given the size that Crystal and I have an audience in the millions, is it a terrible bet to say that there are maybe hundreds of people who would be willing and find it such a valuable product to their lives that they'd be willing to do it? No. It's actually not unreasonable at all, especially given the fact that we actually do have the hard constraint right now of hundreds of thousands of dollars in production costs. Like we actually, this isn't just like I was riding somewhere and now I'm riding somewhere else and I need to pay my rent. This costs a lot of money, a lot, uh, whenever it comes to graphics, desks, uh, daily production, the long-term skills. Now that it is where it's at, then we need additional staff in order to help field customer service requests, make sure that the YouTube thing posts on time. And so the opportunity, the sell for why we actually need or for the pitch, so to speak, it's actually real. As in like, this isn't just about like loyalty. This is, we are running a business which has a large amount of costs. We don't want to take money from anywhere else before we even try advertising. We want to see how much we can support it via you. Please help us out. And people showed up for us in a big way. And what's so smart about that is, and what was funny, I was really bullish on the dispatch charging that amount for the founding members when a lot of people in our DC space were dunking on them for it. Because all that actually is, is basically a 10 to 12 year subscription. That's all it is. And there is a bunch of people who just know you and Crystal enough that they say, you know what? I am super confident that I'm going to exactly. remain subscribed to this thing for 10 years. So if they want to front the cost and if they want to not have to raise money, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who would say, Sagar, I'd much rather you not touch venture capital. I'd much rather you not go to a no, big a lot of people said that. A lot that, of people said, this is why I'm becoming a lifetime member is because I want you guys to stay true to who you are. And I've said this, I said this on the show, my only boss are them. They're my bosses, like not the lifetime members per se, but the audience, like they're the ones who decide whether I live or die not anybody else. And I think that that's actually a very important dynamic whenever it comes to this. Two last questions. So question number one is, given everything you've gone with, you just launched the show today officially, what are your directions for founders, investors? Like, what do you need as a creator right now? You've got Stripe, you've got Simplecast for your hosting, you've got Supercast, what do you need? That's a great question. Um, I guess what I would say is that it's still not quite there. It's still, it's there, but it's not seamless. It's not got that like Apple, you know, finish on it, which is that you still have to collect somebody's email and then you got to send them an email and you got to make sure it doesn't go to the promotions folder and then they got to click on their link. And then, you know, even hitting, having to hit subscribe to a private channel on a private podcast feed, as simple as Supercast has made it, it's still like, you know, there are some older people out there who may not understand how that works. Some people are like, where is my login information? And it's like, you don't need login information. It's just, we're not quite at the level of seamlessness. 
And uh, if anybody can go solve that problem, let me know. Reach out because you have a customer. That's great. And where do you go next? You've had a great launch. You've got the startup costs paid for. Where does this go? Especially since you've indicated you're not going to charge up to New York, SF, or Miami to raise some money for this. What are you thinking about next? Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be fun. Look, right now what I'm thinking about is I just had my very first show today and we have to make sure that the next two weeks actually are all dialed in so we can fulfill our promises. After that, uh, we'll refresh in whatever needs to be within the show in order to dial in the production quality to the way that people expect it. And it's just going to be a process of continuous improvement. Sagar, thank you so much for joining. I think this was super useful if for if there's anyone at a media company thinking about going independent if you're an investor interested in investing in tools for creators like yourself just someone who's interested in how all the dynamics we're talking about in the show are playing out in your specific case so thanks so much for coming in and diving in thanks for having me reminder substack subscription bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.